Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where my guests get to choose five things to put in a time capsule. Yep, you guessed it. They choose four things they love and would wish to preserve, and one that they regret, or find unfair, or even loathsome. Something from their life that they would like to banish to a hole in the ground and never have to think about again. Telling me their five things in this episode is the actor James Moore, who has played Ryan Stocks, the son of Charity Dingle, in the drama serial Emmerdale since 2018, winning the National Television Award for Best Newcomer. James has also appeared in and directed the YouTube short film Spaghetti Legs, alongside Amy Dobson. He's also acted in Straw Man by Rex Urbano at the National Youth Theatre Epic Stages Showcase in 2017. And in addition, he also appeared in an adapted version of Romeo and Juliet by Kieran Mortel at a Playhouse Summer Showcase. James has cerebral palsy, but as you'll hear, he refuses to be defined by it. Now, as we chatted, our conversation sort of drifted, and we didn't really end up choosing anything for a time capsule at all. But what we did talk about was much more interesting anyway. So here is my conversation with the lovely, funny, charming James Moore. So have you had a chance to think through your life and look for some things in it that you'd like to put in a time capsule? Kind of, yeah. Especially me and my girlfriend got moved in together a couple of months ago. And basically, this is almost all of my belongings are now <laughs> in this little space here because I've got so many records and CDs and books and just bits of general crap. I mean, I'm a collector, really. 
Bethany with music and vinyl and stuff like that. Like, I'm a collector. I couldn't bear to throw any of it away. <laughs> and, um, like, when we're moving house and stuff like that, I had to be really kind of harsh with myself because I just can't bear to part with anything. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, people are divided, aren't they? You're either a hoarder or you're a person who likes to get rid of things. I'm definitely older. Do you think that actually that might be an age thing? I've found that as I get older, I don't cling to things as much. In fact, mm. I'm quite happy for things to go. Yeah. In fact, there was one thing I was looking for for today, specifically, and I know I knew where it was at my old place, but they obviously removed and everything got kind of jumbled around. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I can't find it, but I will describe it to you. Um, so is this the first thing you want to put in the time capsule? Yeah, definitely. So it's a red neckerchief, almost like a bandana kind of thing. Yeah. And um, where that's from is I was in a theatre group from probably when I was about 14 till I was about 18, and then sort of picked it up again, sort of 24, 25. Mm. And um, they had this thing called the summer school. So you go there for a week, and you do a play in the week, and you perform it at the end. And uh, one of them was about a camp, and a load of kind of misfits, and disadvantaged youth mm. going to, like, this camp for the week and telling the stories about, like, their lives. And I just really bonded with all the actors as well. And we, we had a good laugh together. And um, we all wore these red sort of neckerchief things. <laughs> and I still, I know I still have it somewhere and it's going to do my head in now because I'm thinking about it mm. and I can't find it. But it's just... I thought it was an example of something really simple that really had quite a lot of meaning to me. Yes, exactly. You know? so, That's exactly the thing. So you started when you were 14. Mm. Had you done any acting before then? Um, not really. I sort of got into it really, luckily, around about GCSE time. And that's when I kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. I had a massive gap because I didn't think that I would kind of make it. And then, so I went off. I did photography at uni, and I did performance art and stuff like that. Mm. That weird, weird performance art project. <laughs> that I would That's love what you do when you're a student. Yeah, yeah. Great fun. <laughs> Great fun. Yeah, I do stuff that... I like to make people look cringe. So, <laughs> so I do stuff like I did a project about self harm and sort of popular culture and punishment and stuff like that. And I covered a whip. It was almost like this cat and nine tails whip. And I cover it in paint and then flagellate <laughs> myself with the whip. <laughs> I did this at an art gallery in Newport in front of 40 some odd people. Wow. And my parents. And what was the reaction? Um, I think there were kind of arty people who also got the concept of the piece. But, like, yeah. I think some people were 
just getting always just gonna be like why why the fuck would you do that to yourself? <laughs> you know? Exactly. I did another one as well where um we had two projects about the river ask that run through Newport. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'll do one about my, because I can't swim, so I have a fear of deep water. So I thought I'd do one about that by holding my head in a bowl of water for a long enough, <laughs> doing it again <laughs> in the bathtub, and then getting someone to try waterboarding on me. Oh, my word. Which was horrendous. I mean, it was, it was horrible, but it it's part of the experience, and that's what I think I really enjoy in art. Yeah. Because when I was doing straight photography, I was getting so bored. And why I think that was is because I wasn't kind of experiencing anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doing stuff like that turned into kind of a real rush for me because... I felt more connected with my process and what I was doing, which also kind of tied into being an actor as well. It's funny, isn't it, that world of suddenly deciding that actually you're going to, in a way, make an exhibition of yourself. Mm. Uh, I have to say, James, that in my entire career, I've probably worked with maybe, maybe two people who have any sort of disability at all in the acting profession. Yeah. So it's it's an extraordinary rarity. Uh, I don't know why it is. I think people have this really kind of... They get really defensive about their sort of right to play anyone, especially yeah. on Twitter, where <laughs> it's kind of ironic because you feel like hardly any of the people that are saying this are in the business. They're not actors by any stretch of the imagination, but they will defend to the death a person's right to crip up, as it were, and play a disabled character. I just think it's ridiculous, especially in a time where we seem so focused on diversity. And so we're getting so far with black minority ethnic actors, LGBT actors, you know. And I think disability is sort of lagging, lagging behind. It certainly is. And comments like what Piers Morgan came up with, I feel like, in a way you could say it's not helping, but I also feel like it's on the other end of the spectrum, it does help bring more awareness. Mm-hmm even if it's the wrong kind of awareness, people are still talking about it. You know what I mean? In a way, what you need is someone to say something stupid to encourage the rest of the world to say what is obvious. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've noticed on Twitter and things like that that people have said about you, does he really have cerebral palsy? Yeah. As if you're acting it in the things you do. Yeah, and people ask me if I can do things or what I'm allowed to do. And, you know, I've had people say, like on MLL, there's been scenes where I'm driving. And obviously, in order to drive on TV, you need a licence to drive (laughs) in real life. 
And one would have thought that would patently obvious <laughs> to anyone. But I get people on Twitter saying, how can you possibly drive <laughs> a car on an MLO? Surely he wouldn't be able to drive in real life. Wow. And that's ridiculous. Like the assumption people make, they're almost bending over backwards to make assumptions about me. They're almost always wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. See, what I think is is sad, and yet what you're doing that, that will be encouraging that, is that there are clearly, there are as many children who have some form of disability. I'm not sure, I don't like calling it a disability. You know. Disability is an adjective, isn't it? It's not pejorative in the slightest. Right. And um, I, I think you always hear about people saying, oh, political correctness has gone too far and stuff like that. And I think that whole thing is ridiculous. But disability is a perfectly acceptable word to use. It's not a slur or anything like that. Yeah, and yet it has negative connotations, doesn't it? It does suggest, because of the very nature of the word, that you have a lesser ability. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And in fact, quite often... All the people I've known with some sort of either physical or even <coughs> mental disability have a great strength in another area. Yeah. Uh, they have something much more positive to give elsewhere, as it were, rather than, okay, I can't run as fast as you. But you Yeah, know, I think that's it. I think the focus should be on what you can do rather than what you can't. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I may not be able to walk as well or perhaps talk as proficiently but i think i'm you know i've got this far yeah. i'm on tv i'm a, i must be a decent well, exactly actor. i'm not very good at talking myself up. but it's can you do the job in the end that will be the judgment it is can you convince people that what you're saying you mean when you're acting yeah and if you can then you're a good actor and as far as the clarity of your voice for example have you ever seen Marlon Brando do almost any role he ever did? I haven't, but I know I know exactly what you mean. That would encourage anybody in that situation who thinks, oh, well, I can't speak like the great actors. You know, well, watch Marlon Brando. Yeah. You can't understand a fucking word he's saying, but it's brilliant. <laughs> On the other end of that spectrum, mm. I must say, Mark, you have almost the most perfect clarity that I've probably ever heard in an actor. Your, your diction is just always on point. Well, I've worked on it, but it doesn't necessarily make me a good actor. No. There are many, many <clears throat> sides to acting. And so what I don't understand, James, is why, why it's taken so long for people to recognise that, to say, well... Anybody can play these parts. And in fact, different people will bring different strengths to it. Well, I think I think the problem is that there aren't any real established disabled actors. Because I think what we tend to see is, like, when we get a di- movie about a disabled person, it tends to be a wee, kind of big, weepy Hollywood blockbuster sort of sob story that, kind of pitying on the disabled person. And then when they do that, obviously they have a big Hollywood major actor in order to convince 
people to go and see the film because they will look at that and say, oh, um, Brian Cranston is in it or Eddie Redmayne is yes. in it. And then Tom Cruise, and they've it. all done it. Exactly, exactly. But they don't have any big-name actors who are disabled because they keep putting the same people in the role. And it's a cycle, you know what I mean? And in order to break that, in order to break that cycle. And also, for those people, and I, this must be galling, is that those are the Oscar roles, aren't they? Yeah. When they do those roles, people sort of go, wow, that's amazing. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. my left foot. You know, yeah. uh, Tom Cruise in a wheelchair, a Vietnam vet. These are the roles where suddenly they're going to win the Oscar. So they're desperate to do them. They think mm. they're great roles. But it's it's sort yeah. of absurd. And it's also, when you get comments like you've had saying, does he really have cerebral palsy? Do these people think you are, well, undoubtedly, the greatest actor in the world, because I've never seen anybody pretend to have a disability and do it terribly convincingly. <laughs> I think, yes. I did them. I think I'm an incredible, incredible actor as to be able to pull that off, because I feel like it must be really hard, you know, for all these people defending cropping up. I can imagine it must be a really difficult, annoying thing to do. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it. I would not want to do it because not only do you have to remember your land and be in touch with the story and think about all that stuff that you normally would, but also you have to put on this, I don't know, kind of do a, a saggy shoulder or like a limp or, you know, change your voice <laughs> up. And it's like, as a casting director, why would you want someone to go through all that effort and, you know, you even hear of people getting advice from disabled people <laughs> for an able-bodied person to play them, which makes no sense whatsoever. Why would you go through all that and spend all that extra money and all that extra time when you simply could hire a disabled actor? Yes, yes. It's cost-cutting <laughs> as well. It's much more time efficient. <laughs> the assumption must be, James, then we have to face up to this, that they don't think that, well, like you said, A, that the audience will come and see it, and B, that they'll find an actor of enough skill and strength to play that sort of lead role. And that's that's really condescending, isn't it? That's the underlying thing behind all this. That's the underlying thing behind this culture that we live in, this kind of ableist culture, where we don't think disabled people can do anything or they they are good enough. You know what I mean? I do absolutely know what you mean. I mean, put it this way, Emmerdale was my first proper job ever. When I left university, I, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't find work. I was going to New Job Centre for about two years. I got hired by a company that hired disabled people to work voluntarily for other organisations. So I worked in an art gallery voluntarily and was paid by another organisation. Mm. But only when I started MNL did I get, like, a first proper wage for 
just doing them regular yes. jobs. Not a subsidised wage, as it were. Yeah, and that, that's insane that I managed to find it easier to get a role on a soap opera than I did finding a normal job. That's extraordinary. A quote-unquote normal Yeah, absolutely. So th- your brain works as well as everybody else. Yeah. Your body you find more difficult to control as other people control it. Yeah. I had the proof of that. I have a, a Bachelor of Arts degree. I went to uni for three mm. years. I did the same educational path as everyone. I was always in mainstream education. Right away through school. Yeah. And yet these things that, you know, obviously I don't have any control of that. People always seem to let me down for some reason. And um, the more I looked at it, and, you know, you, you kind of almost blame yourself, like when you're a teenager. And then you get to a certain point and you think, hang on, it seems to be everyone else that has the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine. You look around and think to yourself, it's everybody else who's worried about this. I'm not worried. Yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Let's face it, you were willing to sit in a gallery and smack yourself on the back with a whip with covered in red paint. Yeah. And that sort of nerve, that sort of uh, determination, it's exactly what you need as an actor. That sort of, I don't care, I'm going to have a go. Yeah. That's the thing that's going to make you succeed. And the other side of it is all, is all irrelevant. Mm. There was a time when people said the same thing about black actors. They said, well, we can't put them in the role. First of all, the audience won't really accept it, and I don't really know if they're good enough. And it's quite absurd. Yeah, and I think it will look at it from that historical standpoint then, in a way, it's kind of promising, because I think the only way to go from here is up. Mm. I mean, I wasn't alive back then, so... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that once people must have started having their conversations about black actors and other ethnic groups, then it must have kind of paved the way for... For all sorts of decisions. And more... I mean, in a way, there was always a, a group of people that argued, well, if they're good enough, they'll pu- they'll push their way through. They'll mm. rise to the top if they're good enough. But mm. that doesn't work. Yeah. That's not fair. It's, it just doesn't work. <laughs> I hear that a lot. I sometimes say that, you know, disabled people just aren't getting auditioned enough. I mean, they might get auditioned, but it's not happening enough. And that was maybe an assumption on my part at first, and then I had that confirmed by other people. And then I hear people on Twitter saying that, how do you know disabled actors aren't getting auditioned? Maybe they're just auditioning alongside able-bodied people and able-bodied people just happen to be better actors. And if I don't like the fact that able-bodied people can play disabled people, then that's not equality. That's, that's extraordinary. The point is that you should be able to play any role, really, and... Yeah, we, And it took a long time. You have to... I mean, I'm sorry to keep going back to this, but it's what informs me, really, is that I've gone through a period where I've seen a change in the attitude to black actors. 
and, and actors of colour, mm-hmm. which I think is an absolutely crucial thing that's happened in the acting profession. And thank heaven it has. But it really took people to make a conscious decision that this is not fair because, as you say, they're not getting enough auditions. If there's a part to be playing a new doctor in Holby City, why are you not up for it? Yeah. And I, I think the way the landscape is at the moment, disabled actors' opportunities are already very slim because, as you say, certainly we should be able to play any role. You know, I, I would love to hopefully one day play the next Batman villain even yeah, better. Yeah. But as of where we are now, we're stuck in this box where we can only play disabled characters. But because able-bodied people are being given those roles, they're kind of margin for what we're able to do yes. is being minimised even Further. Well, you want to get to the point where, in fact, the disability is not even part of it. It's not relevant. So if you're playing uh, a solicitor, why not? I don't think it should be ignored. I don't think I think it should be acknowledged mm-hmm. because it's always going to be part of the conversation and it'll be part of who I am and it's my life. Yeah. But I just think when we see people on screen, we should see them for kind of the character they're playing and not the disabilities they have. Because I feel like you have a disabled character on screen now, and this is even true for me when I started Emily. You had to go through a period, like a transition phase, where you explain that character and you explain their disability, and you had to kind of jump through all these hoops to kind of justify their participation before you can start treating them like a normal member of the car. You know, you can't just go in and just have a disabled character and say nothing. Hmm. There has to be some kind of additional explanation. Yeah. Well, I I can see that argument, but I, I also look forward to a time when, in a drama somebody turns off camera and says, uh, Chief Inspector Johnson, uh, could, could you have a look at this for a moment? And a disabled actor walks into shot and says, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah, well, what you need to do there. And nobody <laughs> yeah. says, uh, could you come over here if you want a hand with your sticks? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they just, yeah, they yeah. just are there, part of society, and nobody mentions it. I think it depends on the story and what the story is trying to reflect. Because the story isn't about disability then why not just include them anyway? But I think by the same standard, we should have stories about disability, especially now, because we're so educated by culture and media now that I think it's important that we have fair representation of disability in media to normalise it in society so we can make ways for Exactly what you were yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take you right back and your little 14-year-old self with your red bandana uh, and your gang, and we're going to take that bandana and put it into the time capsule for you. So we've got four more things to get in, James. What do you want next? Okay, this is the point in the podcast where we take a short break. We'll be back very soon. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. Let's get straight back to James Moore and see what else we end up talking about. Four more things. Oh, wow. I kind of sat at this bookshelf behind me, but now, now I'm looking at it, I almost, I'm almost kind of stuck. <laughs> um, I get a lot of things in the post when I'm up at Emmerdale, and this is something that I got made for me from, like, a fan in the show, and she customised one of those little Funko Pop figures yeah. into one of my characters. Oh, uh, brilliant. I have a few of those lying around, like a little Lego one and uh, one that someone knitted <laughs> as well, a hand-knitted doll. I mean, because that's quite a moment, isn't it, when you suddenly go, well, I can't get seen for anything. I've done a degree in photography. Yeah. I'm bored with photography. I'm not getting what I want from it. And yet I just can't break into the acting profession. I don't know how that is. And mm. then suddenly, Emmerdale comes along. Well, um, I went to the National Youth Theatre mm-hmm. in sort of the summer of 2017 and did a course with them. And then after that, I just started writing to agents because I had a film that I made with a friend a couple of years before about my disability and sort of a short comedy piece and um, started emailing that round. Um, I never emailed an agent who specialised in disability before, which seems like the most obvious thing, <laughs> but I don't know why I, I just didn't do it. But she got back to me and said, wouldn't I tell you on my book? Great. And then about three weeks later, the Emmerdale audition sort of just fell into my lap. She said that I emailed her on the same day the script came in <laughs> from Emmerdale, which is, like, I'm not a big believer in kind of fate and stuff like that, but that sort of made me reconsider it because that is almost too strange. Yeah. 
The world is full of coincidences, but uh, some of them are amazing, aren't they? Yeah. You hear people ringing the wrong number and then the person they'd rung answering it. <laughs> but that would only have happened because of your determination to do the thing, mm. to keep pushing at agents mm. and saying, you know, will you represent me? Will you try and help me get work? Mm. That's true for all actors. It is that determination and that drive to keep going when, in fact, everybody around you is saying, I don't think this is going to work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in your case, I would imagine a lot of people said to you, yeah. James, this is not going to work. Yeah, totally. And I say that was why I started doing photography, because I thought it felt like a safe option that I could perhaps make a career out of if everything kind of went tits up with acting, yeah. you know. Uh, so I sort of started banking on that as a safe alternative, when really... I think if you're looking at it in terms of the art, there were no safe alternatives in the art. I feel like if enough people say that kind of thing to you, you eventually listen and you go, maybe, you know, maybe I won't be able to do it. And that kind of, I think that kind of negative attitude held me back. And that's why it took me so long to get back into it. Yes, quite. So along the lines, as things go on, how do you see things progressing, do you think? Would you like to direct if you've already made your own films? Would you like to direct? I have directed. I made a talking in the short film that I made. I directed that and starred in it. Yeah. And that was a comedy about my disability and how other people sort of reacted to me, I would quite like to direct. I sort of started writing during lockdown as well. I sort of I started writing a drama slash comedy about a disabled person, mm-hmm. um, a disabled actor trying to find work <laughs> because I I struggle to keep focus while writing a project. So I thought if I literally write it about exactly what I know then surely I can kind of find some flow in it. Yeah, so I wrote a lot of that. I kind of worked off in characters. I based one character on on Tim Peeney. <laughs> I watched him Benidorm at the time, and the, the running jokes throughout my series where the lead character will order a taxi to get somewhere to an audition or to a date or whatever, Something bad will happen to him, and the same taxi driver will come and pick him up <laughs> every single time. That's very good. So I sort of, I got this character, this sort of, he's really nice, really sweet, and encouraging sort of Geordie taxi driver who, in my head, is just. Tim Healy. <laughs> Whenever I read it, in a dress, and not not in the dress, but when I read it, I was like, "That's Tim Healy." Yeah, he's always great in everything he does. Yeah, I sort of brought a lot of stuff from my life into it. Obviously, dates and stuff like that. I've met people before that on the street that maybe thought I was drunk or thought I was on drugs. <laughs> I've been stopped by the police. Um, for example, like last year, I was on my way to Leeds, and um, I've been out with my girlfriend for like a pub dinner, 
dropped her off and then went to Leeds. And I was getting on the motorway. And I got stopped by the police and they said, okay, we had a um, report of, you know, someone thought you were drinking. And I was like, well, I had a coat. I mean, it must have been because of the way I was walking. Someone saw me and then decided to call the police. And then I had to wait for about half an hour because they couldn't find a squad car with a breath like that. (laughs) So that effectively holds me up even more. And it's sort of small things like that that I kind of worked into my series and into my writing. Because when you look at it from an outside perspective, these things must sound ridiculous. But they happen to disabled people all the time. How absurd that the police, the moment they'd started talking to you, went, oh, I I see what's happened here. We're sorry, sir, on your way. Rather than, well, we still have to breathalyse you. That exact same thing has happened to me before as well. That literally almost verbatim has happened to me three or four times. And the police are well aware that what's happened has been completely misinterpreted. Yeah. But because because of, I don't know, maybe it's some kind of protocol they had to follow that, that they were obliged to do, that I always end up having to then get breathalyzed. I've never been breathalyzed in my entire life, never. Oh, it's, it's hard work. You've got to blow through one of those little tubes. And um, <laughs> the first time I did it, they were like, you need to bellow harder. And um, I failed to do it twice because you really have to like blow for about 10 seconds to get reading. <laughs> and then they were like, well, you can't do it this time. We'll have to take you down to the police station and do a blood test. So luckily, I managed to do it on the third reading. <laughs> um, I went to a party that night at front house, stayed there. That happened on the way, and uh, my friend didn't have any straws, and I, I can't drink from a glass, I had to use a straw, so I just used this little breath line to, <laughs> to, drink, to drink beer from. <laughs> the perfect use for it. <laughs> the irony was not lost on me at all. As long as you don't do it while you're driving. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic, James. So, was it really obvious right from birth, really, that you had this? Mm. I imagine it must have been. My mum knew I had it from birth, well, because I stopped breathing and there were complications at birth. So I had to, my mum had to get to there with them and I had to be removed. So, obviously, you know, I was in an incubator, I think, for the first 24 hours or so of my mm. life. And, um, yeah, you know, we all knew from day one that I had to overhaul it. You hear of some people develop at a later stage, but for me it was kind of the fact that I, I used to walk perfectly fine, apparently, up until I was about five. Really? Yeah. And then it kind of sort of deteriorated, and I sort of was going to physiotherapist, had to use a walking frame, and, like, wheelchair and stuff like that and had to sort of try and do exercises to kind of get my legs back on track. Did they ever tell you why that had happened? Do they know why that happens? No. 
Maybe it was age. Maybe it was me getting bigger and getting taller because it happened again, not to the same degree, but it did happen again in sort of my adolescent years. And while I was getting bigger and getting taller, I would find it more difficult to walk. Yes. Because my body was growing at probably twice normal weight or whatever. Mm. And so I, I think that's a lot to do with it. It's like just general growing pains and sort of maybe struggling with that more than a lot of people. Right, yeah, of course. So when you were at school, do you think that that thing that naturally is going to make you stand out, differentiate you from other children, mm. do you think that actually becoming interested in performing is you sort of embracing that, sort of going, well, if I'm going to stand out, I might as well stand out. Maybe. That wasn't a conscious decision that I made, you know, because I feel like a lot of the people in school were kind of on the sportier side of the spectrum, like most of my year group were really sporty and athletic type, and because of that, I didn't really fit in with a lot of people in my school. I don't think me joining, me kind of getting interested in performing with a conscious decision, but um, what I will say is I've always loved storytelling. Like, my first word, according to my mum, was book. <laughs> so I've always, I've always been interested in storytelling and writing and reading. So I think performance for me is kind of an extension of that. Mm. And that sense of sort of being able to tell a story and participate in that story, which is what I really like. Yes. But I hope that as you go through your career, I hope that eventually you get to the point when they say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Theatre stage, James Moore, who's going to talk to us about the extraordinary days that he experienced as a young actor when there were hardly any disabled actors in the profession. And people will sort of laugh at that idea. Yeah, I, I hope so. People say that it's ridiculous to compare cropping up to blackface, but Sally Phillips recently talked about it. And I cannot kind of laud her enough because she's done so much for talking about disabled acting and advocating that in, in media. Mm -hmm. And um, she wrote a fantastic article where I think she openly, directly compared Quipping Up to Blackface, which I feel like people see that and then kind of rude thing to say, almost an offensive thing to say, but at the same time, people will remember it. Yeah. And people will remember that comparison because, as outlandish as it seems, there was obviously some truth in it. Otherwise, why would you make that point? I saw a comment on Twitter that said something like, did that mean all superheroes must be played by superheroes and all mermaids must be played by mermaids? I'm like, you don't fucking get it. <laughs> there are no superheroes. Yeah. You don't have a fucking clue. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Superheroes are not real. They don't have a life. You're comparing a real marginalised group of people to 
a fictional character. You know what I mean? Um, um, Absolutely. These things will change. Uh, I hope you get a chance to work with Sally Phillips one day. I have to say I've done, in my career, one day's work with her, but it was very memorable. She's a marvellous actress. I would love to work with Sally Phillips. The thing that's wonderful about her, I think, is that she never did two takes the same. Every time she came to doing the scene, she would approach it with a fresh eye. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's great. Love that. I've never come across anybody as innovative as her. You make me want to do something like that. I do do an Emmerdale um, history. Emmerdale's one of the few soap operas I've never been in. So, uh, you know, put a word in for me, James. We should get you on that. I'd love to work with you one day. I'll see you on set. I love that. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you, James. Really nice to get to know you. And uh, I wish you every success as time goes on. Thank you, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Michael Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, James Moore. I know this episode wasn't exactly like others, but if you enjoyed it, which I hope you did, you can subscribe to it on the podcast provider of your choice. Ours is Acast, who very kindly administer this podcast. You can find out what's coming up by following either me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And the theme tune, written and performed by Pastor P's Music, is available to download on Spotify. This was a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. And we'll be back again soon with more lovely guests like my lovely guest, Moore. Quite like that. But probably with a few more items for the time capsule, I should imagine. Not that I really care. I mean, John Lloyd didn't put anything in his time capsule. And a couple of people have got away with more than five things, or five good things and nothing bad. But as I always say, rules are made to be broken. At least that's what I'm going to tell the judge at my trial for non-payment of a library fine. Yep, that's me. Rebel without a... Well, without a library ticket, actually. Bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.